John chapter 1, beginning the reading at verse 1 and continuing through verse 14, which is also our text. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And then our text, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. These the very words of God. A little bit about Advent, but very little, because the picture I'm going to give you now I gave you once years ago, if my notes are right on who I spoke to what. In 2005, I was a trustee at Calvin College. Then President Bush came to speak to us, and after a lot of preparation, security, etc., the trustees who sit in the front seats at graduation and me, the first in alphabetical order in those days, sat right in the seat about 10 feet from President Bush. And there I understood what Advent was. What a privilege to sit in such a privileged position. Advent is the season of coming to, as you heard, when we have the privilege of focusing our attention on the one who is mega times greater than the President of the United States, the Christ of God. Enough about Advent. As I said and long for, may your Advent be truly Christian, truly wonderful, and may this sermon start us in the right direction. Now, John 1, 14. We'll go through the verse carefully. I'm going to tell you, and I think warn you, that the first two words, the word, 
are going to be difficult theology. And I appreciate the depth and difficult theology so much, I'm not going to skip over it lightly. So please bear with me and give me special attention if needed. And then after that, we're going to come to that word became flesh, the incarnation, and made his dwelling among us. That's going to be very easy for you, I promise, if the first is hard. So let's start with the first words, the word. Obviously here, what John is doing is going back to something he said in verse 1. Since we didn't talk about verse 1, we almost have to. In the beginning, John 1, 1 starts. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It strikes you that John is imitating Genesis 1, 1. Well, they knew their Bibles then, and he's doing it on purpose. He's talking about a time of new beginning, a better beginning, by starting in Genesis 1. In the beginning was the word. Now, was. Genesis 1, 2 says, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness over the surface of the earth. For it seems like John is referring intentionally to Genesis 1, 2. He is, and he's telling you, good news, a new beginning. John 1. One again, in the beginning was the Word. And in Genesis 1-3 we read, And God said, the first of 12 references to God speaking. God is the God of a Word. Now here's where the sermon is going to get difficult because we don't intuitively understand the word today probably seems strange to you adults, certainly to all children. And here's where we're going to go very slow and also very carefully. But the main point is going to end up as, hear ye, hear ye, like in the Supreme Court, oye, oye, listen, pay attention. You think creation was great? You're going to hear something greater. You think the creation was flubbed up and became a mess because of sin? You're going to hear God's answer to sin. You're going to hear about a new Adam, a new person, who's going to lead the way into a new creation. And you, by your belief in him, become in him and a part of it. Good news, gospel. That's where we're going to end up, but... Now, the part that's difficult for us. The Word. All four Gospels introduce Jesus differently. John, theologically here. There's a Greek background to this, the Word. A biblical background. And then a point about Jesus. Now, let me start, try to illustrate this way with the Bible. The Word. Four simple statements. One is, God supposedly can speak any spiritual word he wants and does so speak 
and there's probably many words God spoke to angels and so we've never heard. But God also spoke his word in two ways that the theologians call general revelation. The earth just shouts out that there's a God. This world was not made in Japan, not made in the sweatshops of China, or anything like that. And if people don't suppress and repress and refuse to see the obvious, they believe that God made this world. Almost all the pagans, probably all the pagans do. It takes a sophisticated ignorance like an atheist to say there's no God. God spoke in general revelation and also in special revelation, which we'll get to. And then there's the word of God through the prophets. Thus saith the Lord. And it is written. And all of that word from God is incorporated into the Bible, this book. And what John 1.14 is saying, based on John 1.1, is that the last, the greatest, the most amazing, the most awesome word of God that all the rest is inculcated into is here in the word Jesus Christ who sent into the world in the incarnation. That's what Advent's about. But now, and here we're going to be in, I suppose, the hardest part of this sermon. I'll illustrate after I explain. In Greek thinking, we'll do it in four steps again. Number one, the ancient Greeks, will explain historically, believed in these silly gods like Zeus and all the rest. Later, the philosophers came along and said, that Zeus stuff and all those hundreds of gods is silly and wrong. They believed philosophers, and something they called logos. They knew that someone made this world. They just didn't know him. Unknown God in Paul's language in Acts 17. The logos meant there's a reasonable force, there's sense, there's power behind it. Logos in Greek thinking is hard to put in English. The short is the word, but it includes more than the word. And then a little later, some Greek philosophers came along and said that logos had to be disseminated, radiated out into the world. And it was indeed radiated into the world in many ways, but most importantly, in human soul. And therefore, we have, and their word for it was internal fire. We have internal fire that created a human soul and people. Now, why mention that? Well, let me illustrate, if I may, because in a way it's important here. I brought my flashlight, which I can turn on here. And if we put that Greek thinking into Christianity, the Greeks were looking up. Jesus was up in heaven, second person of the Trinity. 
And then in Greek thinking, that word was very important. It was God, and Jesus is God, the Son of God. And then what happened in Greek thinking was that God emanated out into the world. Hopefully this is just above you. I don't want it in anybody's eyes. Emanated out into the world and then came down into people who have a soul. Now translate that into Christianity. What Logos is saying is that Jesus, who came, was in heaven, divinity, the eternal Son of God. Forget idolatry. There is a God. He is a Son, Jesus. And God emanated in the incarnation or sent out or shined upon the world his Son, Jesus Christ. And the Son, Jesus Christ, has an internal soul that's divine, but he's also human. So he's the divine human one. It starts with God. And something very, very special in this universe happened. Incarnation. Jesus has that divine nature. Fully divine, as the cream puts it, and fully human. That's what the word means. Now, brief word about church history, and then we'll go on to easier stuff. What is the central moment in church history? I listened to a series by Robert Godfrey recently who said he thought the center moment of church history was Martin Luther saying at that diet of W-O-R-M-S, Worms, that makes children laugh because of the German word, uh, that, that, Louis, uh, that uh, Martin Luther said when he faced the Roman interrogators there, here I stand on the Bible and evident reason from the Bible and nothing else, not popes or anything. Now that's Godfrey's opinion. I'll tell you what I think. Oh, am I supposed to stay back here for the camera? I better do that. Um, I think the central moment in church history came in the year 325 at the Council of Nicaea. Everybody there was in favor of one God. Some of the delegates were maimed from the tent persecution, fingers cut off and that sort of thing, but they were still there. The last persecution had recently ended. And the issue was, who is Jesus? Some wanted to say Jesus because there's one God is slightly less. He's 1% or less lower than God. He's 1% less or later than God. But the council said no. There's John 1, 1 and the many other references in John that called Jesus God. Therefore, Jesus is not 1% less than God, not 1% after God. In the beginning... He was there with God, and he was God. John 1, 1 was the key text, you see. And so therefore, the Council of Nicaea said, fully divine, fully human, that's what it takes to be a savior. No one who is merely human, less than divine, can do the work of saving. 
That means that the incarnation becomes the all-important thing in history. Jesus coming into the world in order to do the saving work he accomplished on the cross, you see. So if I were to point to the central moment in church history, I guess I would point to the incarnation and or maybe the decision at Nicaea that Jesus is fully God, fully human. That's what you're remembering today, incarnation in 2020. Now, we can go quickly through the rest of John 1.1 and then to John 1.14. In the beginning was the Word, as we sit echoing Genesis 1, 1 to 3, and the Word was with God. The Greek word for with there, pros, I guess we don't have any English equivalent, means intimately with God, very much with God. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Oh, is that important, friends? And that's what I told you they decided to affirm at Nicaea. Now, the fact that the Word was God means so much. Let me cite just a couple. Number one, if God didn't come into this world to save you, you couldn't be saved because no human could save you and you'd be on your way to hell. But because God came into the world fully divine, fully human at that incarnation at the first advent, you're savable by faith in Jesus Christ. You're in Christ. It's altogether different. You're not hopeless. You're filled with hope. Here's just one more benefit of the Jesus was God. Christianity is unique and better, the one and only true religion. God's grace through Christ, it isn't there in other religions. Every other religion comes down to you succeed by works in one way or another, whether it's through a lot of coming back into this world, reincarnation, whether through it's a lot of good works, whether it's through purgatory or whatever. Christianity, biblical Christianity, is unique and better. and That means everything to you. The word was God, and then verse 2 briefly, he was with God in the beginning, not a second later, by the way, the tense, Greek has a lot of tenses, six of them. It's a complex language. When we were in Greece, I asked our tour guide if, Greece still had all, if Greek still had all those tenses. She said no. But the tense that's used here in John 1 in the Greek, in the beginning means before the beginning of time and continuing into time. Verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. Repetition for emphasis. Hear ye, hear ye. And verse 3 yet. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Harks back to Genesis 1 again, doesn't it? But the point is much more than harking back. 
The point is an added fact that makes Jesus fully God. Because God created before anything in creation was. Even the events of the first day. And creation is just amazing. And studying for this sermon this week, I wrote something down. Listen to this. we got time for this yet. Jesus co-creates. Now think about this for a moment. The average galaxy contains 100 billion stars. And there are supposedly 100 million known galaxies and known space. Einstein thought that we had scanned with our largest telescopes only one billionth of theoretical space. This means that there are probably something like 10 octillion stars in space. God the Father, with Jesus Christ the Son, created it all. See, John is just emphasizing he's fully divine. You, you can't miss that if you're honest in John. Now, John 1.14 is our text, the Word. We've talked enough about it. The Word became flesh. That's the incarnation. He became fully human. And, we're told, made his dwelling among us. The Greek word there is tented, and that's what's easy for you to understand. The original tenting, people lived in them, especially the nomads, and would move their tent from place to place and set it up. The image was easily understood. But we today are into something just as easily understood. Some of you are probably tenters. Others of you I know are campers with trailers. Uh, that's the idea. The word became flesh and tented among us for a while of 1 verse 14. And then John says, we have, and that means John was an eyewitness, seen his glory, his brightness, his brilliance, and his weightiness or worthiness. The word glory means both. Glory of the one and only. The old version is only begotten. It's footnote here. The one and only or only begotten who came from the Father and then full of grace and truth. Every time I read, you that, read that word grace, I think of a story that my notes that I already told you, so I'll give you the briefest of summary. A friend of mine in Minneapolis biking along the path, dog in the path, bike hits dog, falls over, face first in the soft something alongside the trail, lifts up his face, stinks. It was dog doo-doo. But the dog doo-doo was soft <laughs> and saved him maybe from other injuries, some of them potentially very serious. He got up, at first he wanted to the dog owner was right there. I'll sue you, the mentality of today. But then he said, no. I understand something of the grace of God. Jesus came into this world full of grace. He fell into, if I may call it, the dog do 
of our sin mess. And he stayed there and did the work he was called to do, the work of saving us. That's God's grace, full of grace and truth. Truth is that which conforms to God-created facts. Some people get that all wrong. Truth is not my feeling is true. Truth is not your truth and my truth, even if they're different. Truth is not just what works. That's Hitler's view. If I can make it work to kill all the Jews, that's the true way to go. None of that business. Truth is what God says. And the point here is that everything you've heard in John 1 up till now is about God's grace through Jesus Christ into this stinking, sin-filled world, and that's the truth. That's our text. Now, I have a couple minutes yet, and so what I'm going to do in those few minutes is try to get very, very practical with you and just ask and answer some questions to help you, also you parents, and maybe you at work, to explain incarnation to a world that doesn't understand. Just a few questions here. One, very practical applications of our text. How does the Bible say Christ's incarnation happened? Well, the Holy Spirit overshadowed or brooded over Mary. Parallel again to Genesis 1-1 where the world was void and God overshadowed it in creation. That's how it happened. That's not contradictory. That's the meaning of Emmanuel. You can tell people that. Tell them the truth. Another question. How is Christ's incarnation important? Answer. It's the center of human history, giving meaning to history. Once talk show Larry King said he'd like to interview Jesus Christ. The questioner asked, and what would you ask him? King replied, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. Looking these questions over quickly here. How should I picture incarnation? Like astronaut Neil Armstrong, July 20, 1969, landing on the moon said, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. So was Jesus' incarnation. How can Jesus' incarnation help me? Answer, with sin. One day a man who fed his pet snake fed mice, dropped a mouse into the snake's cage. The snake was asleep in the sawdust. The tiny scared mouse had a problem. The snake would wake up and kill him and eat him. What could be done? The mouse covered the snake with sawdust, burying it. He covered himself with sawdust, a good work to bury himself. Hiding the problem, he thought. Not so. The snake 
woke up, sensed the mouse, killed him, ate him. That's what sin would do to us. Christ came into this world to take the bite. Last question. How can I explain incarnation to others and to my children? Try this. Sometimes a picture's worth a thousand words. The little boy looked up at the sky and asked his mother, is God up there? She answered, yes. He continued, wouldn't it be nice if God would put his head out and let us see him? The mother answered, God did show himself in Jesus, wise mother, incarnation. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, thank you for John's way of introducing us to Christ, the incarnate Son of God. We've heard facts. We've appreciated, which in some way is the highest way of all to respond to scriptures. And the final word has to be praise to you for the incarnation that we think of in Advent. Amen.